Welcome everyone again. Uh, thanks for tuning in to our sixth podcast about uh, Eastern philosophy. And hopefully you've tuned in to the previous five because we're sort of building up on what we've said previously. But I'm going to try to talk about uh, this next topic um, in terms of sort of basic knowledge. And uh, hopefully if you're just tuning into this one, you'll still understand it. So we're kind of looking at the point of Eastern philosophy in our modern lifestyle in our Western world. This is primarily uh, given to a Western audience, an American audience, if you will. And so there are many therapies that the Westerners use uh, for us. There's psychotherapy, there's psychoanalysis, uh, there's sort of behavioral therapy, uh, there's AA, there's things like that. We also have our, our religions and we have our family and friends, we have our interpersonal relationships. Um, but what I'd like to sort of explain in this podcast is that we do have something even higher uh, than that in a sense. Uh, because this would be the um, sort of philosophy of sort of the common people that are looking for enlightenment. So what I'd like to talk about first is that we talked about the mind and we talked about its relationship to consciousness. So we have to remember that the mind, our minds are a contracted form of consciousness. So when we see that our mind is just sort of, it's like almost like focusing um, a, you know, you have a magnifying glass on the sun and, you know, you, the sun doesn't burn a piece, a hole through a piece of paper, but you put a magnifying glass on that and it burns a hole in the piece of paper, right? So you, you think of the mind as being that focused part of the sun, which is just pure consciousness. And that's fine if we live our lives without ever having an awareness of consciousness. But the point I'm trying to make is beyond all of our sort of normal functioning, we should have an awareness of the greater consciousness. You know, we should have the awareness that the sun exists, you know, in that context, uh, that all this isn't just magic, it's because of consciousness. And that's what makes the mind uh, very peaceful. And once we understand that, that we understand that consciousness illumines everything just like the sun uh, illumines everything as well. And there's an ancient uh, scripture that talks about consciousness. It's called the Vijnana Bharava. And in that, um, Lord Shiva says, just as articles produced by a magician, things created by Maya, an object seen in a dream have no real existence. The Lord's manifestation in Sakala form does not really exist. And Sakala means everything that's perceived by our inner faculties, which is senses, mind, and intellect. So we understand that Lord Shiva according to the scripture, transcends everything in that context. And that's the same as consciousness. So when we have that awareness, that's like seeing the sun. 
you know, we, we normally are functioning with our minds. We're normally uh, looking at things in a very focused way. We see ourselves separate from other people uh, around us, and we never really have this awareness of this sort of all-powerful sun or consciousness, which is equivalent to Lord Shiva uh, in this scripture. So that's really what we're sort of looking at. Uh, and there's many techniques for sort of uh, having that awareness. And one of the main ones is meditation. So we've talked about meditation a little bit. And that's sort of why we meditate. So we can see the sun of consciousness, if you will. And that's also the same as the self. So the self, uh, Lord Shiva, in this, according to the scripture, and consciousness, we should see all as the same entity. And so that means that consciousness exists everywhere. It exists in people, it exists in things, it exists in nature, uh, it exists within us. And we should have the understanding that our limited I, our individualities, are really nothing but this consciousness. So we want to try to merge our individualities into this greater consciousness. And that's sort of this topic of surrender. And that's what we try to do with surrender. Now, surrender is a very powerful technique. It's not something that makes you small from being big. It's actually something that makes you big from being small. And anyone can understand this. Take sort of an unemployed person who gets a job. Suddenly now that person is representative of a larger company or a larger corporation. Before they were very small and now all of a sudden they're very big because they've sort of been employed and taken that sort of surrender to their employment. So it's the same way with surrender to this all-pervading consciousness. But it doesn't mean we have to give up that job of limited identification. We can certainly do it uh, in our lives. And that's why I was saying that there is something more than just what we have normally. We have something that we can actually do without giving up our normal lives. We might have to give up our egos, right? We might have to give up our limited individuality, but that will just make us better employees. Uh, that'll make us much easier to get along with. We'll be able to work much more efficiently and we will uh, be able to function much better. So there's a story that's talked about in the scriptures concerning uh, surrender, and that's this concept of we're always looking for other people to surrender uh, for us. You know, we're, we're, we think we're enlightened and we want everyone else to surrender to us. And that's sort of a false way to go about it because why can't we surrender? If we have the self within us, and we have consciousness within us, then certainly we can surrender. We don't need someone else to surrender for us. Uh, and the idea is that if we do get someone to surrender for us, then that person becomes enlightened. We don't get it. So if we surrender, we get it. If someone else is surrender, they get it. So the idea is that we should try to surrender uh, so that we can get the fruit of surrender. Uh, you know, you want your friend to get, if you're, if you're, say you and your friend are both unemployed, you want your friend to get the job. Well, if he gets the job, then he has the job. You don't, right? He's getting the money. You're not. He has the stature. You don't. But we always try to get, we always try to help other people instead of actually thinking of helping ourselves. 
So that's the kind of analogy we should look at with surrender. Don't worry about someone else surrendering. Um, instead of you, that might be a great means for you, but they're going to get the fruit of that, not you. So in a sense, you, you should surrender and not worry about whether your friend is surrendering or not, because in that way, it's sort of a false attainment. If, 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 if I'm unemployed and my friend's unemployed and I get him to get a job, I haven't gotten a job. You know, I still need to get a job. So we can understand it in that context. Uh, and, you know, one of the big sort of, I talked about meditation uh, previously, and I, I think that we should talk about chanting as being sort of the two big things that we do in spirituality. We meditate and we should be chanting. That means verbal chanting of mantras uh, along with our meditation. And actually, we might even find out later that chanting is actually even more important uh, than meditation because what it does is it's sort of a more of an active process, especially if we're not meditating very well. And in that way, we are actually doing something uh, as opposed to sort of being like, am I meditating, am I not meditating? I'm not having good meditation. When we chant, it doesn't matter really. It takes all kinds. And it doesn't really matter how we're doing. If we're chanting, it will work. Whereas meditation can be a little tricky sometimes. If you're sitting there and you don't know if you're meditating, you're better off chanting uh, mantras than you are to try to sit and wonder if you're meditating or not. So that's a little trick uh, for advanced meditators. They should really should, should just be focusing on chanting, uh, and then chanting will come uh, of its own uh, effect uh, as a result of the chanting. So if we're just focusing on, uh, on chanting, then we will find meditation coming quite easily to us. So uh, just to kind of go along in this direction, there's other things that we can look at um, that kind of can help us be sort of helped. And one of the things is people say, well, you know, why am I poor? Or why am I rich? Uh, and the idea is that happiness isn't going to be in poverty and it's also not going to be in riches per se. And we look at poverty and wealth as just being sort of the effect of destiny. So we have a certain destiny in our life and no matter what we do, we can't really change that destiny. If we're destined to be rich, you know, we're going to be rich. There's nothing really that we can do to stop that. And if we're destined to be poor, then there really isn't anything we can do to stop that. So most people are always thinking about riches and poverty, but they don't understand that those forces are really actually beyond their control. They're based on previous karma, and there's not really anything we can do to change it, and we really have no idea what it's going to do to us. So we shouldn't really be focusing our attention on riches and wealth. And that's one of the major sort of uh, issues for Westerners and Americans is that we're always focused on wealth, whether we have it or whether we don't, and whether we need it or whether we're going to lose it or whatever. But really, it's, we should think of it as being completely beyond our control and not something that we should really be focused on uh, in that sense. And it's not that we can't do good things and increase our good karma, we can, but only if we're sort of surrendering everything to God. You know, most people think they might be surrendering things to God, but they're really keeping them 
keeping everything to themselves. To really increase our karma, we really want to be thinking of everything that we're doing as sort of an offering to our God. Uh, and if you don't believe in God, you can just say, well, I'm offering this to the greater sun, the greater consciousness. And, you know, there have been, there have been meditators that have worshipped the sun. Uh, the sun was their deity, you know, sort of like scientists that are atheists would, would really respect the sun and understand the sun in this context of human beings living on earth. And there were actually spiritual beings who their deity was the sun. So, but in this context, we're looking at the sun as an analogy for consciousness, uh, all-pervading consciousness that illumines everything. We also have that same sun, if you will, within us. It makes us alive. So we can also surrender uh, the fruits of our actions to uh, this inner self. And that's what will increase our karma. And so instead of sort of like wondering if we're going to be rich or poor, why not just surrender the fruits of our actions, what we're doing that's good, to uh, the inner self, uh, consciousness, or Lord Shiva. Uh, and I speak about Lord Shiva, but you shouldn't think of it as being any different than uh, God uh, in that context. So um, then we understand, I talked a little bit about the blue light, and this blue light uh, was very important for self-realization. And this is uh, a vision that you get as, a great, as the grace of God. You know, if you have a vision of uh, a blue light, then you can think that God gave you that vision or the guru gave you that vision uh, or consciousness provided that vision. You should see consciousness in the blue light as well. So, you know, and there's this thing that, um, you know, people say, well, you don't need the blue light you don't need God, you don't need consciousness. And I think if you understand how ridiculous that sounds, because without consciousness we wouldn't be alive, so if someone is trying to tell you you don't need consciousness, uh, you have to sort of wonder what they're really saying to you. Uh, because you have consciousness within you, and they're saying, hey, you don't need that. Uh, it's almost like saying, you know, we don't need you here. <laughs> we don't need you on this earth. So it's sort of a, a wrong way to go about it. If someone's saying that to you, just don't listen because it doesn't really make any sense. Um, and as long as we don't listen to people like this, uh, we'll be fine because it can completely confuse us uh, and take us nowhere, really. Uh, it can only make us sort of a slave to that person, if you will. So um, the last thing I will be talking about is just a little bit more from last episode about how, you know, what this sort of state of enlightenment is. And it's kind of a little beyond meditation. It's the fruit of meditation. Uh, it's the fruit of mantra and it's the fruit of chanting uh, practiced for a long time. And, um, you know, it sort of doesn't mean that Western psychology is useless because if we you know, if we don't think consciousness is within us, if someone's telling us we don't need consciousness, then a psychiatrist or a therapist could easily tell us, hey, you know, you're fine, you're okay, you know, you're going to be okay. They may not try to enlighten us, but at least in that safe space, we can sort of uh, realize that we're okay uh, and that, um, 
you know, that's a sort of a function that they can serve for us on the path as well. So it's not something that we totally just discard. And um, so the awareness of consciousness is the, sort of this state of samadhi or this state of realization. Uh, and um, it's not really something that you can talk about uh, too much <clears throat> in a podcast. It's more something that you need to sort of experience yourself. Uh, and it's really sort of the hallmark of that state is a sort of a silence. So if we understand that silence is really what we're looking for, then we can understand that it's probably something that we can't really describe uh, too well <clears throat> because the state itself is without thought, right? So if, if it's a without thought and it's silent, then it's not something that we can really um, understand. And you can try to think about it in terms of a holy place, you know, a church or a, another holy place of pilgrimage. You know, it's, it's sort of all about silence. You know, it's sort of like what you experience there is a silence. But we should understand that also exists within us because we do have the self within us. And I talked about this in the first podcast about how we should think about religion compared to the self. Since the self encompasses everything, we have those holy places within our heart. We have those places of pilgrimage within us, within the inner consciousness. So, um, and that's how we should sort of look at it. And that's the kind of realization that you have when you become enlightened. Uh, you know, you realize there may be no sense in going to this, this or that holy place because you have a feeling of it in your heart. And that's what these realized beings do wherever they go sort of becomes a holy place uh, because they have that feeling of the inner consciousness pervading everywhere. So, and anything that we get from this path, we're going to use to enlighten others. So that's sort of the give and take. Whatever we attain, we're going to want to give to other people. So you say, well, you know, if someone says, hey, well, I can't see consciousness, you know, give me a break here. What are you talking about? You know, and the idea is that, well, even if cotton, you know, is in a shirt, we may not be able to see the cotton in the shirt, but we should have at least the understanding that cotton became the shirt. So if someone says, well, I can't see consciousness in you, I can't see consciousness in anything, we, we should try to explain to them that they should at least have the understanding that consciousness exists, uh, even though we may not be able to perceive it. So, but we could certainly take that shirt and shred it and maybe, you know, you know get a ball of cotton from it. Uh, if we use some processes on it, uh, we certainly could. Uh, the same way, you know, we, should, we shouldn't have to try to destroy something to try to understand that it is actually consciousness uh, in its empirical form. So we will, uh, you know, try to merge our individualities into consciousness and we try to uh, realize that consciousness within. And, uh, you know, the idea is that, well, if I'm feeling it, that doesn't mean someone else isn't feeling it. And the idea there is that, yes, it's the same feeling in everyone. It's the same entity in everyone. 
uh, regardless of race or religion. So we should have the understanding that consciousness dwells within everyone. And there is a goal of bliss. You know, it sort of gets rid of our normal misery and allows us to uh, live, in, live in ecstasy. So we do have a point in this meditation and um, we should see it, we should see the same self in other people, period. And that's going to help us uh, get to where we're going because we can't see someone as not having this consciousness. Um, and we can understand it too in the sense that uh, once the body dies, consciousness remains. So that's sort of the foundation of this idea of reincarnation is that once we die or our friends die or family dies or our loved ones die, consciousness still exists. So it's the same consciousness in everyone and the bodies just are born and die and consciousness actually doesn't go undergo any change. So we should try to see consciousness as being a part of our individualness and also separate from it, right? So it becomes the individual and it also remains completely separate from that individual as well. So this uh, consciousness is just the I that we talked about previously. And if we have the awareness of the I, then we see that really everything in the world is sort of a play of consciousness or a play of that I consciousness. And that everything we're seeing is a foundation, has, is found, has a foundation in consciousness. Uh, so that we can um, see that someone who has become perfect in their meditation and has attained perfect understanding, has gotten rid of all of their issues, uh, would never be defeated by anyone because this is someone that is perfect in their being and just sees consciousness everywhere. And so no one would, uh, no one would provide sort of an obstacle for them because they would be this master this one, this Nero, uh, like in the Matrix. So that's kind of what we're looking for for ourselves. And we should think that everyone has the ability to do that, that we have the ability to do that, and so does everyone else. And in that way, you know, we were talking about surrender earlier. We should try to do it for ourselves. We shouldn't be trying to do it so much for someone else because then that other person has it and we still haven't gotten it. Uh, so we're really going to try to want to get it for ourselves. And um, so we say, well, if I'm already the self, why do I need to attain the self? Well, because of your imperfections of not being able to uh, see yourself as consciousness. You might continue to see yourself as an individual person. So um, we want to kind of see ourselves as consciousness regardless of our individualities and that's sort of this merging of this of the individual self into the larger self and we can think about that again that everything is this sort of this play and that we should see the self in other people regardless of our circumstances or regardless of the other person's circumstances we should always be focusing on this self which again is that same as that blue light that we experience in meditation um, and so we, the scriptures talk about the universe as a play of duality in a sense because they have this Shiva silent principle 
and then they have we have this act of kundalini so what's the relationship between lord shiva uh, or consciousness or that sun and the kundalini and actually the idea is that the kundalini is the part of the creation that's moving so if we see that all of the movements and changes are the kundalini uh, and that the kundalini is part of consciousness we can understand how this play can be so wild and so chaotic it's just that kundalini that's functioning uh, from consciousness it's sort of the power of consciousness and um, so you know we can understand that from the idea of an ocean and waves the waves might be totally chaotic but it doesn't change the overall understanding of the ocean as sort of this silent entity. It doesn't matter how big the waves get, it's still a part of the ocean. And so it doesn't matter how crazy the, sh the kundalini can be uh, in the creation or the chaos, it's still a part of the larger ocean. And so uh, once we have our kundalini awakening, we don't have to really do much. It sort of takes care of us and it eventually merges us into the sun, this sun or this consciousness, which is the root of where kundalini has come from. So we sort of become kundalini, but we also sort of become consciousness, or we, we become God, we become uh, all-pervading in that way, uh, because we have this inner self within us. So we can think of the inner self bringing about kundalini, and then we can think about sort of kundalini coming from the inner self or coming from a guru or coming from God and we can see that duality and then we're sort of you know Shiva or God in our own being uh, because we recognize Kundalini as being a part of God or consciousness so that means everything that we're seeing is actually a part of God or a part of consciousness and every major religion talks about the same thing so this shouldn't be any surprise no matter where you're coming from uh, that God does pervade everywhere and so but we should actually see God everywhere uh, and that's sort of a little trick that we can use it shouldn't be that surprising if we if we believe that God is everywhere why not see him everywhere too uh, so thank you very much for listening and uh, hopefully we'll have something again soon thank you